The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. If you were going to title this, this section of the letter, I would, I would title it Suffering Servants in Subjection. That's what we are called to be as the children of God. We are called to be suffering servants in subjection under the authority in submission to others. Last week, uh, Jacob began to unfold this for us in the first example that Peter gives of um, a subjection to authority in a way that reflects on the goodness and the grace of God through citizens um, subjecting themselves to the state. That was, that was last week. This week, we're going to look at how servants subject themselves to masters. That's, that's this portion of the text. And then next week, it will be wives subjecting themselves to their husbands. In all of these areas, remember the, the greater context here. That we're to live a life that shows a lost world even as they slander us. The grace of, of God through our willing submission and our righteousness. Our righteousness. Now, Jacob, like I said, took the task of expounding the text in 13 through 17 last week and how we submit to the government. This week, we look at how uh, servants submit to masters. Now, this is a text that culturally doesn't fit directly to us. And the reason is because Peter is addressing slaves. And we are, by God's grace, not Slaves. Now, the common way for a preacher to take this text and to preach it and then to apply it is to take it and apply it in the terms of an employee-employer relationship. Like, you should submit to your boss in this way. I'm not going to do that. Because I think that, that weakens the, the thrust of the text. Because this is not an employee-employer relationship. We can't make it be an employee-employer relationship. Now, we could take some principles from it, and we will, and we will apply it to that, that uh, relationship. But this is, this is much, 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 much more than that. If you're an employee, and you have an employer that you don't like or treats you harshly, guess what you can do? You can quit. These are brothers and sisters who cannot do that. These are slaves. These are not employees. And we need to understand that from this, this, this text. And while we can't look at this and say culturally this doesn't you know, fit us exactly... What we can understand from the text is that the main point of this text is one that transcends culture 
and applies directly to each and every one of us, regardless of our circumstances. And that's what I hope that, that you see this morning from the texts is, is what we can understand Peter saying to these slaves applies to every single one of us, regardless of our circumstances, and really even regardless of the relationships that we might uh, try to apply them to. This applies to every relationship, what we learn from this. And here's, here's what I see as the, the main point of what Peter's getting at as he addresses these slaves is that we are called to live a God-centered life. That's the main point. That's the main point that, that Paul is, or that Peter is showing us, and this is what I hope we can see by the aid of the Holy Spirit, and then we can apply it to our lives. So let's look together starting in verse 18. Peter writes, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, the first question we have to answer is, to whom is Peter referring to here when he says servants? Who is it that, that Peter's talking to? Because this is a specific um, set of people in these churches that he's writing to. These servants are household slaves. These are slaves who are, who are owned by masters and who work as household servants in the homes of these masters. And Peter's instruction here is, you slaves, you submit with all respect to your master. Both the good and the gentle master, this is the upright master, and the unjust or the unrighteous master, regardless of how they act or what they do, you are called by God to submit with all respect to your masters. To your masters. Now, the first thing I'd like to do this morning as we look at this text is get some understanding here on the issue of slavery. We must really understand the cultural context in which this letter is written. And we cannot come to this text and walk away from it believing or thinking that this is God's approval of slavery. Because it is not God's approval of slavery. So there are some that will take this text and will say, you can see here, Peter is telling these slaves to submit to their masters, the good ones, but even the bad ones. And, and this is God's approval of slavery because if God disapproved of slavery, then God would have told them not to submit and would have spoken uh, negatively about slavery. Now... We can't come to this text and, and, and come away with, with that. What we can say clearly from the whole of the scriptures is that slavery is not God's ideal standard for humanity. And slavery is something that does not honor God, nor has it ever honored God. But the reality here is... Um, a culture 
where slavery was an integral social construct. It was the most dominant social construct in the Roman Empire. There was no, no um, part of culture more dominant than that of, of slavery. Many of these slaves were slaves from conquest. As the Roman Empire marched and conquered lands and people and they had become slaves. We must understand that here, slavery was not one of race. We understand because of our national history of slavery being a racial issue. Slavery here in these churches and in the, in the Roman Empire was not one of race. It prevailed regardless of race. Most estimates put the number of slaves in the Roman Empire upwards of 60 million slaves. The majority of these slaves were white. These slaves had no legal rights. They had no justice. They had no court of appeal. According to Roman law, these slaves were not persons. They were things. Aristotle has said of slaves that they were a living tool. And these churches that Peter's writing to would have been full of slaves. Full of household slaves who were under the subject of masters. And by God's grace, the gospel has made deep inroads in the lives of these slaves. Most historians will say that the most fertile ground for the gospel was in slavery. These slaves had heard the gospel, had received the gospel, and some say that the majority of the Christians in the Roman Empire were slaves. Now, let's think about this for a minute, and let's think critically of this. For a minute. If you come into a culture that is dominated by slavery, 60 million slaves, the economy dominated by slavery, and the gospel makes deep inroads within these brothers and sisters who are slaves, where the majority of Christians are slaves, and you're coming to a place who's never heard the gospel before, they're there is no, no churches here. Churches are being built. The gospel's being proclaimed. People are being saved. And the, the gospel's moving forward. It's doing the exact thing that Jesus said must happen as it goes from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The gospel is going forward. And it comes head on into this, this culture of, of slavery. One of the, the quickest ways to absolutely crush the gospel's march through the Roman Empire would be 
for Peter to write, slaves, stand up and revolt against your masters. Would have been the quickest way to end Christianity's march. And so that's not what Peter does here. Instead, Peter gives instruction to these slaves on how to live in such a way that shows a master, be he just or unjust, be he righteous or unrighteous, good or bad. You live in such a way so that this master of yours might see in your life the grace of God in the gospel. Because the gospel is greater and the gospel is more important. That's the context in which this is, is written. This is who Peter is, is writing to. The gospel's being proclaimed, and it's a gospel that is clear that within the church of God, there is no distinction, slave or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile. And so you have in these churches, certainly, both slaves and masters. In the kingdom of God, in which there is no distinction, slave or free. So I can imagine this is probably taking place in this church, in these churches, where you have slaves who have been elevated within the church to the role of elder, of ruler in the church, as overseer in the church. And you have masters who now are called to submit to their elders who are their slaves. Can you imagine the, the cultural upheaval that's happening in these churches? Slaves, spiritual overseers of masters. This is, this is happening. And so how are you to respond in this, this context? What are you to do? Could you imagine the the confusion here. And so Peter's writing to these slaves, explaining to them how it is that they are to live with their masters. The kingdom of God is set up one way. The, the world is set up another. And our job and our hope and our desire is to live in such a way that the world begins to model and to reflect the kingdom of God. So what are they to do? How are they to reconcile this? And so Peter writes to tell them, and this is not a, a declaration that is pro-slavery. It is simply Peter addressing them in their current circumstances on how to live in a way that would cause the lost world that they are living in to hopefully respond in faith to the gospel. That the way they should do this is to be in subjection to their master regardless of their treatment of them. That's Peter's command here. And this is why I say that this is far more than employee-employer relationship. That if your master is good and he is gracious, then you respond in subjection with respect. We understand that. I don't understand slavery. By God's grace, that is not the culture here anymore, and by God's grace, that will not be the culture anywhere anymore. But Peter's saying, even if your master is unjust, you respond 
with a willful and respecting submission. Now, how in the world are these brothers and sisters to do this? How in the world can they embrace this kind of life? What would they need that would empower them to respond to an unjust institution of slavery and an unjust master this way? Well, what is it? Here it is. It is an understanding deep in your core that says God is most important. And that God's name and His renown and His glory is more important than anything in my life. Even my righteous indignation over unjust treatment. That's, that's the undercurrent of this text. That we are to live in such a way that deep in our core, part of who we are of our nature is one that says God is most important and He is more important than my circumstances. And God's name and His renown and His glory is more important than anything in my life. It's more important than how I respond to being treated unjustly and how I respond to uh, the suffering that I take in my life from unjust people. God is more important. That is, that's the undercurrent here. And this is the way that Peter says it. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Of God's. You see it, verse 18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. And then this, this phrase here, for this is a gracious thing. What does this, what does this mean? Well, I believe it, it carries with it a couple of meanings. First is, is that it is an evidence that the grace of God is in you. So the ability to respond to an unjust master with all respect, is an evidence that the grace of God is in your life. This is an evidence that you believe that God is most important. You cannot live this way and you cannot respond this way outside of being born again. Right? That's, that's, that's 1 Peter chapter 1. We were born again to a living hope. So when this new creation comes, when we are born again, it gives us a disposition that is supernatural. That doesn't come from us. And so an ability to 
to submit ourselves with all respect, even to an unjust master, is an evidence that the grace of God is in you. It's a gracious thing. The second thing is, I, I believe that it is an action that is worthy of approval from God. When Peter says it is a gracious thing, it carries with it this meaning that you have done something. You have, you have uh, responded in such a way. You've lived in such a way that your life and your response and your action is now worthy of approval from God. And I think this idea of approval is the best understanding of this because this is the same phrase and it's pretty clearly seen in verse 20. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of, of God. So we, we have these, these two phrases here, a gracious thing in the sight of God, a gracious thing in the sight of God, sandwiched in between them is if you sin and are beaten and, and suffer, what, what good have you done? You've sinned and you deserved it. But if you don't, and you suffer, then God gives his approval of the kind of life you are living. If when you are treated unjustly, you respond with respect to authority, knowing that God is most important, when God sees that, he gives approval. He gives approval, right? So Peter holds up the opposite to drive home the point. For this is a gracious thing. Verse 19, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. What good is it if when you sin and suffer for it, you deserved it? This uh, does not reflect on the glory of God. But if you suffer unjustly and do so with a submission that is unnatural, that is supernatural, then God gets glory. And the unjust master sees in you something totally different. This slave, totally different than these slaves. And what is it that is the, the, the difference maker? And the hope is here that it becomes evident to this master that the difference maker is the gospel. He will eventually see this testimony, connect it with the gospel, and be saved. And the only way to be able to live this way is to put God first. See, I, I believe that the key in this is this phrase, being mindful of God. God. Mindful of God. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. The only way to endure this kind of unjust suffering and to respond to it with a gracious, respectful submission is to have a mind that is set on the greatness of God more than your personal greatness. That's the only way to respond this way. It's a mind that is set fully on the greatness of God that says God is so much more than my comfort. God is so much more than my circumstances. God is, is so much more than my reputation. And so I willingly 
submit myself to suffering at the hand of an unjust master with all respect so that hopefully, by God's grace, that master would see it and would respond in faith. Church, listen to me. This is what a God-centered life looks like. This is what a God-centered life looks like. Now, it is easy to believe and to hear preached that a God-centered life is a life of blessing. It is not, church. Not physical, temporal blessing. Not always. A God-centered life is a willing submission to unjust treatment in the hopes that somebody sees the gospel through our lives. A God-centered life is a life that says that your rights, your comfort, your reputation, it all comes after God. God is first. The driving question in your life becomes, when you're living God-centered, how does my reaction and how does my actions reflect on God? And does it show the gospel as beautiful to the world? Church, listen, we may not be slaves. But we cannot look at this text and say that this doesn't have anything to do with me because I'm not a slave. The point is, if God has called these brothers and sisters to this, it pales in comparison to what he's called us to. Right? I mean, if God has called these brothers and sisters to suffer this way, and yet in it to stay mindful of God and His greatness. How much more has God called us to keep our minds set on God in the little ways that we suffer compared to this? And I, I know some of you, there's some serious suffering in your life. And I don't want to minimize it because to you it is big and it is real and it hurts. But I hope what you see in this text is, is that God has called you to a life that is centered on Him, that is mindful on Him, and that you can do it because these brothers and sisters could do it. And we all do suffer, and at times it is unjust suffering. But the question is, how are we going to respond? How are we going to respond? I, I don't like to get political, but it's hard not to in this culture. You know what I mean? It's just low-hanging fruit, and it's everywhere. (laughs) The Democrats had a a town hall that dealt with LGBTQ issues in our culture. And one of them asked Beto O'Rourke a question about... Um, churches, schools, charities that didn't afford LGBTQ people the same rights as others. All right, here's what that means. That means a church who wouldn't allow people living in homosexuality to be a member. That means a church who will not officiate 
allow, condone homosexual marriage. That's what that means. Would you take from them their tax-exempt status? And he said, you bet I would. You bet I would. Now I hear that and I think, man, that hurts, right? And that hurts because what's that going to do to our churches? I mean, you hope and you pray that people give to the church for more of a reason than because they get a tax write-off, but reality is reality, you know what I'm saying? And I, I believe that's just the tip of the iceberg of what could come. And we've lived, in a, we've lived in, a, in a culture, in a nation where Christianity has been comfortable for a long time. And, and the days are coming when it will no longer be. And if we don't see this, if we don't understand this, if we don't teach our children this, then we will miss one of the greatest opportunities for the gospel that this nation has ever seen. Because when suffering comes to the people of God and they respond this kind of way, God gets glory and people get saved. I, I read an a article that said soon, very soon, China will be the largest Christian nation in the world. Isn't that crazy? The place where Christianity is outlawed, where churches hide underground, where Christians are right now today being persecuted. That the gospel is flourishing there more than anywhere else. Why? Because when we respond to suffering in such a way where the world sees us and goes, I totally don't get that. That makes no sense. What in the world? And we say, God is greater. We live for something greater. We live for someone greater then they respond when God visits them in faith. This may not apply to us today, but it will one day. And it will for our children one day. And we have to decide today, how are my reactions and how are my actions reflecting on God? And does it show the gospel as beautiful? How are we going to respond And Peter reminds these brothers and sisters and he reminds us that we are to respond in the same way Christ Jesus responded. This is verse 21. For to this you have been called. Now, to what? To what have you been called? Now, to this you have been called. You have been called to a life that puts God first even in and especially through suffering. That's what we've been called to. A life that puts God first, even in and especially through our suffering. This is not a life of privilege that we've been called to. This is not a life of personal gain that we've been called to. It's a life of Suffering. That's what we've been called to. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. 
For he committed no sin, and neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, here is the the key. What Peter is saying is Christ came and he suffered. You've been called to a life of suffering. That should not be foreign to you. That should not be a surprise to you because this is the same kind of life that Christ Jesus lived. He suffered for you. And he left you an example of how to suffer so that you might follow in his steps. And how did he suffer? Well, he committed no sin. No sin. Here's what that means. That means he didn't deserve the suffering and he didn't sin in the suffering. He committed no sin. No no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled unjustly, he committed no sin. He didn't deserve it. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But even in it, he kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, in his life on the earth, trusted God the most and left for us an example to trust in God's sovereignty the most. That we trust his blessings. We trust his grace. We trust his justice when we suffer unjustly. Verse 24, for he, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds you have been healed. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus Christ set the example for us. The suffering servant under subjection. In all righteousness, entrusting himself to the sovereignty of God and giving his life on the cross to bear his sins or to bear our sins in his body so that through him we might die to sin and to live in righteousness and by his wounds you have been healed. Now, There's, there's few verses in the scriptures, I think, that have been twisted and misunderstood more than this one. By his, his wounds, you've been healed. There's no way to look at the context of 1 Peter chapter 2 and walk away from that and think that that means that it was Christ's death that guarantees our physical healing on this earth. Because the context here is one of physical anguish. That's the context. This is, this is Isaiah 53, where this is quoted from. This prophecy of the suffering Savior who would come. Who has believed what he, what he has heard from you? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. This is the the prophecy of the suffering Savior that is to come. And how it is God is going to go about redeeming his people for himself. He's going to do it through a, a suffering Savior who is despised and rejected by men who doesn't have a form, a beauty, a position on this earth that we would look at and think, this is amazing. But instead, we would look at and condemn. That this would be the son of David. This would be the real king of Israel. This would be the one who sits on the throne of God. This is the one who will save God's people. He is the one and he will be crushed. He will suffer. And through his suffering, we will be healed. Not only healed... But our transgressions are going to be removed. He was pierced for our transgressions. Our iniquities are going to be washed clean. He was crushed for our iniquities. And by his wounds we are healed. All of these are spiritual realities. The forgiveness of transgressions, the purity of iniquities... A healing is all spiritual in nature. It comes from being born again. That physical healing in this life is not guaranteed. That's not what this means. Do you know what is guaranteed? Suffering. Suffering's guaranteed. And this is what you've been called to. That's what you've been called to. A life of suffering. Now, that does not mean that God doesn't heal. He certainly does. God does heal. And He uses many different means to bring about that healing. But that healing in this life is not guaranteed. But because of Christ Jesus, it is in the next life. It is in the next life. What is guaranteed in this life is suffering. And even if that suffering comes from the hand of an unjust, sinful, nasty, no good slave owner, we're to respond with a willful and respecting submission being mindful of God. Now, 
I hope you see how we got to God is most important as being the underlining thrust of the text. So let's not come to this text and say, we're not slaves, this doesn't apply to me. Or let's not come to this text and mean, well, if you've got a jerk for a boss, then you need to be nice. Because this is a whole lot more than that. This is a a lifestyle that is centered on God and the gospel. A lifestyle that says, God is most important. God is most important. And if a slave in the first century could take the unjust social construct of slavery and the unjust suffering at the hands of a sinful master and respond in such a way that God gets glory, how much more should we be able to respond in such a way that God gets the glory when we suffer unjustly in this life? This is what we've been called to. This is how Christ lived. This is the example that He set for us. This is the gospel. Suffering servants in submission with a mindset that says God is greater. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.